Hi, this is Bron Burton and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page. Good morning. It's three minutes to nine, two nine, not past nine. You're listening to 102.73 Triple R. Time for this week's edition of Radio Marinara. We are going a little bit early today and uh, joining you from the Triple R studios is Bron Burton and joining by Skype. Who wants to go first? Well, I'm here. I can't see anyone else. So it's Cade Mills. Hey, Cade. And I think we're trying to line up Dr. Beach as well. Um, Yep. Kent's trying to do that. The likelihood of all the wheels falling off this morning is reasonable. (laughs) (laughs) I actually just thought you were buying some extra time, Bron, so that there is now no excuse for us to run overtime today. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, look, it's a running Radio Marinara joke that um, keeping doctors waiting is our payback for the... Everyone on planet Earth who's ever had to sit in a medical waiting room for a um, significant period of time. I believe we have Dr. Beach on the line. I'm guessing from that little uh, little bit of extra audio we suddenly have. Are you there, Dr. Beach? Nope. Hello. Oh, yeah. Hey. Can you hear me? <laughs> yes, we can. Can you hear us? I can. Excellent. Good morning, Dr. Beach. Good morning. How are you? We're very well. And your good self. I'm very well. That's a beautiful line we have there to you. Oh, excellent, because I'm sitting in my car outside the Malmesbury Bakery. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> hey, look, thank you so very much to Tim Thorpe. Um, not sure what happens. Maybe some uh, some gremlins at his end. He's just sent me a text and says, enjoy the extra time. Thanks, Tim. We definitely will. We're going to need it today. So uh, thank you so much. Thank you to Andrew for Soulful Bits. Wonderful, wonderful uh, tribute to the Dirty Three this morning on Soulful Bits, something I never thought I'd see. So that was really fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, all right, let's uh, let's rip through today's program because it's a it's a huge one. We are going to be joined just after nine o'clock by uh, Safta Ahmed and possibly Daz Chandler, still looking to confirm that, to speak about a vigil which is taking place this afternoon for the smooth handfish. Now, the smooth handfish was uh, once incredibly uh, abundant uh, around the waters of Tasmania and was officially declared extinct in July. So it's a very significant. Uh, declaration obviously uh, this species doesn't exist anymore and uh, it's fairly massive in terms of what it means so there's a vigil taking place this afternoon Um, it will be online of course and it's global Um, so there'll be participants from all over the world and really including um, Bruce Pascoe uh, who is very well known to triple R audiences we're going to be talking to Safta about this event uh, what it means and how you can participate this afternoon Uh, We've got tons and tons of news, tons of science news. um, And uh, Dr. Beach, what will you be covering today? Uh, There's a few papers, Brian, that I want to talk about. Number one, there's, um, oh, it's about light pollution and how it affects corals. We know that light pollution affects all sorts of animals, including us. Um, And yes, I mean, to have a very profound effect on corals. A couple of other things about how we help get marine mammals to help us measure the temperatures of waters at the, the deep depths of the oceans down in the Antarctic. And a couple of other things, depending on how much time we've got. But, yeah, lots of good papers out there. Fabulous. We are then uh, going to be crossing from, I guess, Sydney to Malmesbury to Newmere, <laughs> if everything goes according to plan, Cade. We will be, hopefully. Uh, I think 
it was about this time last year we had Dr. Paul Hamer on the show. Um, and I, to be honest, I can't even remember what he was talking about. Most likely Snapper because he was a Victorian Fisheries Authority then, but was in the process of taking up a new job in Numea, um, managing and monitoring, or not managing, sorry, doing the stock assessments and monitoring probably one of the world's largest fisheries over there. So we're going to touch base with him and hear about what he's been up to since January in lovely sunny Numea. What a place to be, particularly this year. It'll be interesting to get the coronavirus take as well. I'm guessing the job that he's gone to is maybe not the job that uh, that he was expecting, but we'll find out more when we speak to Paul. Really looking forward to that. Um, we've got other bits and pieces of news as well, but before we get into that, I think maybe, Cade, I believe you have the weather forecast for this coming week. I do have the weather. The weather is awesome, and whoever said that variety is the spice of life must have been pondering Melbourne's weather. Um, yesterday it was gorgeous, right now it's fantastic, and later this afternoon we may have thunderbolts and lightning. Very, very frightening. <laughs> but with a top of 29 today, um, get out early and enjoy it because it's meant to turn later today. Um, it's going to drop down to 20 on Monday, but eh, what does that matter? We're mostly going to be working from home anyway. And then on Tuesday it's going to be sort of 21 and Wednesday back up to 29. So, you know, we've got that usual sort of ups and downs that we have in Melbourne. The tides today, we have a low at the heads at 11.30 and a high at 5.46. Uh, the surf is small, there's a few foot of swell around, um, but if you know where to go, you will likely find somewhere to have some fun, but get out amongst it and make the most of it. Brilliant. We uh, have a significantly more amount, a greater amount of time than I was anticipating for our new segment, which is great. I'm going to start with a, a shout out to our listener, Lisanne Oliver. Thank you, Lisanne. She sent us a message via our Facebook page, via Messenger, um, wanting to share a creator from South Australia. And hey, if you're in South Australia, we're all with you here in Victoria. We get what's uh, going on with you right now. So um, thank you. And this creator, she brought, <laughs> she, I might put post some video of, uh, of Lizanne's cat. She bought, so this creator makes uh, marine creatures out of felt and other sorts of textiles. They're absolutely beautiful. They're real works of art. And uh, so she sent us a video of her cat playing with a little felt prawn that she she bought for her so um thank you lisanne for sending that through inky blue handmade is the name of the creator you can find um that creator through etsy etsy.com but we'll put a link to that um through our uh facebook page as well because it's really extraordinary beautiful beautiful creations that she sent through um Cade, you've got some news actually i'm going to hit you up first for a, a, an update on the 2020 victorian fish count how's that going Oh, how's that for a beautiful segue there, Bron? Uh, it's going really well. We've had a few groups, um, a few dive stores, uh, um, you know, finding it a bit hard to get back on their feet at the moment, so they haven't been able to join in. But I think we're having over 50 events across the state again this year. So those that are able to get out have been doing a fantastic job. And if you want to find out how you can get involved, jump on the VMPA's Reefwatch Great Victorian Fish Count page. But one of the things I wanted to mention is that Every Thursday, generally around lunchtime, again, if you jump on that webpage, you'll find out we're doing a virtual fish cam and taking over control of the underwater camera at Pope's Eye to do a 20-minute fish count during your lunch break. So we had our first one last Thursday, and it was great. We were joined by a friend of the show, Mark Rodrigue, um, and we basically just talked fish for half an hour, um, counted whatever came through. We had a few schools of zebra fish, um, the palmer, the... Scaly fin that lives there, Alvis, he even has a name. He lives in front of the camera. 
and basically just talked about um, you know a bit of the history about the area, but also all the fish that were coming past. So you can jump online every Thursday um, around lunchtime, and again, either jump on the Facebook page for ReefWatch or the um, uh, Great Victorian Fish Count webpage through VMPA. Excellent. Dr. Beach, I'm going to throw to you. Um, I reckon let's talk about this uh, incredible sighting of a meteor breaking up from the investigator. Oh, yeah. How cool was that? Um, I'm wondering if you've put it on the Facebook page, but there was a yes, link I that have. I was sent by um, Dr. Damien Callahan, who we had on the show a while ago, and he was on the RV investigator. And anyway, Damien got very excited being back here in Melbourne and looking at the, um, the live stream. They have a camera which is set up on the top of the master, the investigator, which is filming continually and folk can watch it here in Melbourne if they have the link. I'm sure you can find it. Just Google um, RV Investigator or use your favourite search engine. Uh, the other night, they were um, filming quietly. They were about, I think, 200k off the south end of Tassie and had a look at all, all on board the ship, saw it, but it was an amazing image of a meteor re-entering the Earth's atmosphere. Apparently, it was bright green live for the people on board the ship watching it, treated to this very, very special thing. But, um, yeah, we can all go back and watch it in black and white, albeit, but it is amazing to see. So I think you've got the link up there, and I fully encourage anyone um, who's got the Facebook link to, to have a look at that ABC News item. You could probably even just Google that. RV Investigator, Meteor, ABC, and it is an amazing image. And it lasts for about, oh, seems like five or six seconds, this incredible fireball just appearing and then going over the horizon and disappearing. Really, really wonderful stuff. It really is. Um, we have put a link to that on our Facebook page. I've actually posted it as a comment under the post about today's show. So if you go and have a look, you'll be able to see it there. But as you said, Dr. Beach, if you just Google uh, Meteor, CSIRO, Tasmania, it, it pops up. There's four or five. I think The Guardian have posted it. Um, ABC have posted it. Yeah, it is. It's spectacular. It's amazing. Um, how much time have we got? We've got a couple more. Who wants to go with another one? Well, let's stick with the southern waters. I mean, we were a little bit off Tasmania, but let's go a lot further south. And there was a paper which um, appeared in um, Geophysical Research Letters. This is in late October, a little bit, um, little time ago. I wanted to talk about it a few weeks ago, but didn't get time. And this is where people, geophysicists, people interested in the temperatures of the southern waters. So we know that... Um, seawater can well it freezes because it's got the salt in it at less than zero degrees at around minus 1.85 degrees but there is super cool water which gets down to about minus 2.4 plumes of that little bits of it which people have been trying to to monitor and to, to actually find out how much is there um, in the southern waters it's pretty difficult to get those numbers because you need onboard ship monitors you know things that are dropped down into the into the ocean and there's not too much activity happening with that down down in the Southern Ocean, or at least not enough to get a good data set on this. You can also get that kind of data from Argo floats, which we've talked about on this program as well, which bob around in the ocean and can actually dive down into the ocean a little bit. But what these clever people have done is that they've used data which has been accumulated from, um, from Southern elephant seals. So Southern elephant seals were wearing data monitors. People have been... Um, using, as we know, mammals to, to gather data, not only on the, the data which they can return themselves, like how far they dive, how long they're down for, the amount of um, feeding interactions they have. But they've taken all of these data from the previous 40 years and accumulated those together because the data that these animals are inadvertently collecting because we've strapped monitors onto them um, 
is really important and it's got temperature data on it as well. Um, so with all the data points that they've got, it turns out that they've got like 200,000 different profiles from um, mammals, from marine mammals, mostly southern elephant field, seals, as opposed to just like half that number from the Argo floats and only about 13,000 profiles from ships. And they've managed to put all these together, so largely with the help of the elephant seals, and show that this super cool border is a lot more prevalent than previously recognised. So about 5.8% of the analysed water profiles showed super cool water, that is down at around minus 2.5 degrees centigrade. And the reason this is important, it's interesting, is that this super cool water is, is less... Um, is less dense, so it's denser. It goes, sorry, it's denser, so that sinks to the ocean, and with that, that can take down with it um, nutrients and all sorts of stuff. So it's yeah, it's interesting for, for the people who are who are very much interested in this to know how much of this is around there. Yeah, and elephant seals have kindly provided a nice amount of data for us on this. So I think a, a really really good way of using data which has been gathered for, for other reasons and to make the most of that data as opposed to having to go and send out other animals or, you know, like humans or more animals that we kind of, I, I don't know, I don't know about you, Bron, but I sometimes wonder about putting all these data monitors on animals, how they feel about it. It's going to be a bit hard for them to find mates. <laughs> <laughs> You'd think look, so, you don't look, you? You, don't, you don't look too good at the cocktail party wearing this <laughs> video cam on your head or whatever else it is. People look at you askance. <laughs> So, yeah, good, good, good thing that they're using all this data and getting the most out of it. Yeah, I love that lateral approach. And, uh, yeah, who doesn't love a super cool elephant seal story too? That's, um, yeah. that's brilliant. Thanks, Dr. Beach. 9.15, and you are listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR. Now, the smooth handfish was once so plentiful in the Tasman region, it was one of the first fish species to be documented in Australia. With bulging eyes, a mohawk on its head and a hand-like fins that allowed it to walk on the seabed, it was an extraordinary fish and in July this year it was declared extinct. The extinction of the smooth handfish is a significant and devastating loss and as a symbol of increasing extinction events, this afternoon a vigil is going to take place. It provides space for us all to pause, congregate, consider and reflect on what species extinction means, not just for us, but uh, for the entire planet and everything within. Saftar Ahmed is an artist, musician and scholar. He's the founder of the Refugee Art Project and a member of the Parallel Effect. It's a collective of creators and thinkers who've curated the smooth handfish vigil with contributions from all over over the world. It's with great pleasure now we cross to Sydney to welcome Saftar Ahmed to find out more about the Smooth Handfish Vigil. Saftar, big welcome to Triple R and to Radio Marinara. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you with us. I thought we might start by talking about the concept of the vigil that's happening this afternoon and how it developed with Daz Chandler. Big shout out to Daz. She's unwell, uh, was going to be joining us today. In fact, she was the one who reached out to us. So, hi, Daz. We know you're listening. Um, but, yeah, let's, uh, let's talk about the concept. How did it all come about? Yeah, I think it came about um, mostly, perhaps partly in response to the overwhelming sense of dread that a lot of us experienced um, towards the end of last year and earlier this year, particularly around the bushfires that ravaged through New South Wales. I'm based here in Sydney and, you know, I think it was really brought home. I mean, it was an awful experience to finally realise that climate change is hitting, hitting us hard, you know, and it was very hard to breathe the air um, as Sydney became totally immersed in smoke. And so particularly, I suppose, my contribution to this is coming from a place of um, growing angst about the future, um, particularly 
focusing on species extinction and climate change. And so um, the smooth handfish being officially declared the first sort of marine species to become extinct through human influence, such as trawling, um, pollution and climate change, seemed like a good focus to bring a lot of artists, musicians, poets and writers together and really think about what this means. It was a real wake-up call, wasn't it? And uh, I, I know that I can speak for our experiences here in Melbourne as well, and I'm you know, down so much of the east coast of Australia, up into Queensland as well, that experience you're talking about with you know, having that smoke just be so pervasive and constant and really kind of realising the, the magnitude of what we were facing at that time, but at a much broader timescale as well. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Mm. Now, um, and yeah. No, no, go. <laughs> oh, I was just going to say, I think um, the idea of the vigil also, though, is to cut beyond that initial panic and fear and dread that we all feel around climate change and to think more productively and creatively about how we can sort of reflect on what's going on and then find some reservoir of hope, you know, to act on it. And for me personally, that's what this vigil um uh, has been great for. It's um, given me a chance to sort of commune with other artists and writers and to feel nurtured um, and to, um, you know, to sort of find the reserves to think about how I can act on this. Is this something that uh, the pandemic, which is sort of being referred to in various places as the Great Pause, has in some way contributed to as well, Safdar, do you think? Have people sort of had that opportunity to actually have that that moment in their lives to really think about some of these bigger bigger issues that are there and they know are there but maybe in everyday life we just get so busy with everyday life that we know they're there but we don't have the the um, opportunity or capacity I suppose to turn our minds to it has that been a contributor to this do you think yeah I would say so I think um, COVID-19 has forced all of us indoors and it's forced us to sort of it's isolated us that's for sure and I think with that comes spaces to sort of reflect and really take stock of what's going on, you know. Mm. Um, and so <clears throat> this, you know, in a way, this vigil came out of the necessity of that because so many of us were sort of no longer to perform as artists in the way that we conventionally do. I mean, the whole arts industry was shut down for a while there. Um and, and for performers and musicians and poets and, and for so many people, this has been really debilitating economically. But at the same time, um, you know, we need to find new ways to come together and express ourselves. So I think to have an online visual of this sort is, um, I think, a good way to sort of, you know, channel a lot of that creativity and, and a lot of that reflection. Now, as I mentioned, you're primarily an artist and musician, but I'm hoping you might be able to describe the smooth handfish for us uh, just so that we can have an idea of what we've just lost sure so i mean the smooth handfish it's got the name because its fins sort of resemble hands it's developed these sort of large paws that it uses to scramble along around the seafloor so it doesn't actually swim so much as push itself along the you know the bottom of the of shallow water off the coast of tasmania and they were very plentiful um, when the French naturalist Francois Perron um, took a spe specimen back in 1802. 
Um, but since then, they haven't been seen. Particularly, the smooth handfish hasn't been seen. There are other subspecies of handfish that um, are still alive and being protected, but it has certainly become extinct. Um, and it's a very unique creature. The, the fact that it doesn't swim means it's confined to quite a small geographical area. And um, unfortunately, this one is lost to us. Mm. So, um, yeah, I think it's it's you know not the most beautiful fish it's a strange quirky creature but it's a very lovable fish you know to speak from a very human-centered perspective um <clears throat> and so it affords us a chance to really think about our relationship to nature and and what climate change is doing every day you mm -hmm. know as we lose 200 species per day so um yeah a, an interesting sort of focal point i think there's some great photos of the smooth handfish around and um, I was having a look through yesterday just, just having a bit of a search online and uh, remembered that First Dog on the Moon paid tribute back in July when the extinction was first formally declared. The image being used for this afternoon's vigil is one of an urn that's painted with images of the handfish. I wanted to ask you about the urn itself and what's the significance of the urn? Yeah, the urn's beautiful. That's an artwork by Ahmed Salame, who's a very um, talented um, producer and designer and artist and um, it's uh, it's interesting I think a lot of the photos that exist are of the smooth handfish's cousin species you know the red handfish mm. and the spotted handfish and a number of handfish that are still alive but we actually don't have I think photographic documentation of the smooth handfish um, except for a um, pretty hastily done watercolor painting um, and the specimen that was taken by the French back in the early 19th century. So um, the urn, I think, is a way of um, <clears throat> reflecting on the way our own cultural production and traditions of representation might have documented the handfish. Mm. So Ahmed has used an urn, you know, it's reminiscent of sort of craftsmanship that goes back centuries um, and thinking about how it might have been depicted you know, um, and remembered visually as a cultural artifact. So it's an interesting sort of very philosophical kind of way of thinking about how we, I suppose, depict nature as well. Mm. Let's talk about this afternoon's vigil. Uh, we've just heard from the orb weavers who we've loved here at Radio Marinara for many years. They're performing this afternoon uh, as well. I was wondering if you could talk about your contributors and who they're, who they're, where they're from, what they're going to be doing. Yeah, there's a long list of contributors, um, and I'm really excited by the fact that there's so many uh, Indigenous um, and First Nations people also contributing to this event. People like Kat Clark, uh, Bruce Pascoe, amongst others. Um, there's some fantastic musicians um, on the list, as well as a number of writers and scientists and ecologists. So um, it's a really interesting and very diverse um, range of contributors. <clears throat> you, so, yeah. yeah, you mentioned Bruce Pascoe as one of your contributors and uh, he wasn't able to join us today, but Daz Chandler very kindly asked Bruce if he'd record a message for us to play this morning. So Radio Marinara listeners, uh, this message is specially from uh, Bruce Pascoe to you. Uh, my name is Bruce Pascoe and I'm joining the vigil for the smooth handfish from Ewan country. We need to acknowledge our contribution to this serious change in the world. We need to reflect on it because we're contributing to it. You know, we are the major contributor. You know, it's not climate change, it's us. 
we should mourn the loss of these creatures. We should be not just wringing our hands, that's not going to help, but we should really want to change for the sake of the animal, not for us, not for our conscience. We don't want to save the bilby so that we can say, oh, you know, look at us, we've saved the bilby. We want to save the bilby for the bilby because of its law. Nice little punctuation there by Bruce's dog, I'm assuming. So, yeah, special message from Bruce Pascoe out there to you if you're listening today about why you should take part in this vigil this afternoon. Um, Safta, who else have you got? I know you've got a really long list. I'm just wondering if you might be able to highlight a couple of your contributors, uh, maybe from other parts of the world and what they're going to be doing. Yeah, sure. Um, Particularly exciting is we've also got a contribution from Vandana Shiva. She's the Indian scholar, environmental activist and anti-globalisation author. Um, She's particularly um, noted for her um, critique of the way seeds have been painted and owned by, um, you know, major multinational companies and the way that has driven many Indian farmers into poverty and um, and the sort of control over nature that the corporate world exercises. So I'm particularly excited by her contribution. I think that'll be really interesting. We've also got Dorian Sagan, who's a ecologist and theorist and writer. He's the son of um, Carl Sagan and Lynn Margulies. And so he's also written a very philosophical, quite uh, interesting poem where he seems to challenge um, sort of channel Ginsberg and the beat poets huh. and think very sort of cosmically about, you know, our relationship to the world. So I'm looking forward to that as well. Um, <clears throat> yeah, there's so many. It's 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 a um, really exciting lineup. It is. It's an extraordinary lineup. Uh, we'll put a link to that on our, actually, we've already done it, but um, so I don't need to do it again. So you can go to the Radio Marinara Facebook page and find the link there and uh, have a look at the contributors who are taking part uh, it's paralleleffect.com uh, forward slash vigil, so pretty easy to find. Now, it commences at 3 p.m. this afternoon, Australian Eastern Daylight Savings Time, but occurring over multiple time zones. So uh, if you're listening elsewhere, it's live, so you can take part wherever you are. Uh, in uh, Perth at 12 o'clock, Darwin at 1.30, Brisbane at 2 p.m., uh, Adelaide 2.30 uh, Auckland at five if you're listening in New Zealand we know we have uh, listeners all over the world we know that because many of you subscribe during our radiothon so uh, yeah um, East Asia at 11 o'clock South Asia at around sort of five between five and six uh, in Europe this afternoon London 12:30 through to uh, to Russia and Moscow at 3:30 this afternoon uh, Lots of times, lots of opportunities for people to contribute. Um, and even uh, in the Americas, you can uh, listen live as well. So wonderful stuff. Safta, all the very best for this afternoon. Um, probably the – oh, you've got a playlist on your website. I wanted to mention that one as well. There's 32 tracks mm. that people can just listen yeah. to and help them sort of settle into that mindset. That's right, yep. And the, um, the vigil also has a contribution from some really cool Moroccan desert blues um, <laughs> Uh, band which I'm really looking forward to. Now the best way that people can register as I said we've put that link on our Facebook page or you can go to our Parallel Effect website as well so I know I've mentioned it I'll mention it again parallelleffect.com forward slash vigil it's pretty easy to register I did it yesterday it took me about seven seconds so all the very best for this afternoon Safta I'm sure it's going to be an extraordinary event. 
Thanks so much. Thank you for your support. And a big shout out to Des Chandler as well. So uh, smooth handfish vigil and uh, if you can. Oh, actually one last question, Safta. Is this being recorded sure. or do you need to be there present live? Um, I think you've got to be there. Um, I hopefully it will turn up later at some point down the track on the on the interwebs. But at the moment, um, it's a case of, yeah, a live congregation. So it'd be great if you could make it. Yeah, definitely. So be present. Thanks so much, Safta. All the best and uh, hope Thank to catch you. up with you again in the future. Cheers. Thanks so much. Bye for now. Safta Ahmed there. We've been speaking about the smooth handfish vigil taking, uh, taking place this afternoon. It's 9.31. You're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR. We've got time for a couple of quick bits of news. Uh, Kate, Dr Beach, either of you have anything you want to quickly go through now? All I've got is a quick dive report. I just had a look online and someone was standing at Flinders Pier an hour ago and could see the bottom from the pier. So if you're in the vicinity or you're thinking of packing your dive gear, go and see some dragons and enjoy it. Nice. Over to you, Peter. <laughs> I don't know who Peter is, but... Um... <laughs> Thanks, Kate. Uh, yeah, a little bit of news, a bit more science news. Cell's one of my favourite journals, and it has appeared, well, in Cell has appeared a paper on octopuses, which is unusual. Usually it's heavy duty cell biology, biomedical stuff, and all of that. But anyway, there's a group at Harvard who have discovered the cells or characterised the cells which are around octopus suckers. And these cells are the cells which are very important as chemotactile receptors. So some of us may know that. Um, well, I only learned recently that octopuses can not only feel with their arms, but they can also taste with their arms. So picture an octopus shoving one of its eight arms into a crevice, trying to feel around for a crab or something like that that it wants to eat. Um, it can not only touch that, as we could indeed with our fingers, but imagine with our fingers that we could taste that and say, OK, that's what I want to eat. Um, we've known this for some time from various different experiments, but these people at Harvard have used an amazing amount of electrophysiological experiments and all sorts of things and building off the back of the genome um, of the octopus which was published a couple of years ago and the short of it is Braun and Kate that they have identified the cells and in fact that the way that these cells work around the, the suckers on each one of the arms which are involved not only in mechano and chemo um, mechano reception but also in chemo reception so that they can actually taste and they've given they've challenged these receptors um, and the cells from those receptors which they've put in a petri dish they've challenged those with various different tasty things which you might find on the crab exoskeleton on the outside terpenes and stuff like that and they've shown that these react positively to those so that they have now confirmed the time and found in fact identified the cells around each one of these suckers which are involved in tasting prey the signals from those from those suckers go straight back into the arm and then along a really long nerve cord which is along each one of those arms which people have described as being like us like our spinal cord so we have our main nervous system going up our back you know around our spine and then up into our brain of course um, so we can think of octopuses as having eight spinal cords one in each arm as it were they don't have a spine of course these are animals which um, don't have a backbone they've been separated but from us by about half a billion that is 500 million years of evolution. But this is just another wonderful example of how um, a really highly complex nervous system can evolve in parallel with the way that we have evolved and developed a very highly, highly complex nervous system, but in a slightly different way. And this has opened up all sorts of ways for people who are um, very much interested in cephalopods, in um, 
in octopuses and their relatives I opened up a whole branch of study for them now to go in and look at this so this is a big paper with an enormous amount of work into it which was done by basically um, from a couple of PhD students over in um, Cambridge Massachusetts octopus research is absolutely fascinating dr. Beach I just love it every time there's another octopus research paper that comes out it blows my mind they just get more and more fascinating they sure as hell do. I'd really like to get our, our Dr. Norman on the show to talk about it. He'd do a much better job than I. But um, yeah, Norm's <laughs> a busy uh, busy guy. But yeah, as we um, as we all know, Dr. Mark Norman, who's um, got a big position now with National Parks, was very much one of our favourite octopus researchers and, in fact, still is, I hope. Yeah, I heard him speaking during the week about uh, uh, the, the plans to fence off Wilson's Prom uh, using electric fences to, to finally keep uh, feral animals out. Oh, I, I missed that. I've always wondered. I mean, t- to me, it seemed like something that they should have done years ago. I mean, like, here's the perfect spot where you can just fence off the gate, as it were, um, as you're coming in at Yanaki and keep all of these, you know, the hog deer and all sorts of um, feral animals that uh, frequent visitors to, to Wilson's Prom, as I'm sure many of our listeners are, will have noticed over the years, and they're increasing in numbers. So that's that's great to hear, Bron, that they're, um, they're finally planning to do that. Yeah, the money's been set aside, so it's actually happening. So, yeah, really fantastic news. It is 9.42. You're listening to Radio Marinara here on 3RRR. Cade, over to you. It gives me great pleasure to introduce our next guest, Dr. Paul Hamer. Paul has appeared on the show many times as a fisheries scientist for Victorian Fisheries Authority, talking about shellfish reefs and also his alias, Dr. Snapper. Yep, if you have a question about Snapper in Victoria, Paul is still the the go-to guy. However, now we have him on the line from Numea, where he has been working as a principal fisheries scientist in stock assessments and modelling for the Pacific community since January this year. Paul, there's so much to unpack just from that introduction. So I'll start by saying welcome back to Marinara. And where the hell's Numea? Numea, if you don't know, it's um, about 1,000 kilometres or so off the northeast coast of Australia, roughly equivalent um, latitude to Townsville. So it's actually yeah. closer, closer to Australia than New Zealand. And sometimes I wonder why it's not a state of Australia. It's so close. But in these times, we don't have any international flights at the moment. It, it's close, but it seems a long way away. Yeah, well, you know, as you said, you've probably been isolated there since January. Now, look, you work at, it's called the Pacific Community, but well, I want to ask, what is the Pacific Community? And why do they always throw an S into the abbreviated form of their name so you actually work for the SPC? Yeah, it's a little bit confusing when people Google it. They end up in Shepparton somewhere at some fruit cannery. <laughs> but, um, the SPC, the S stands for the Secretariat of the Pacific Community, and that was the uh, the name that goes back to 1947, I guess, when this organisation was first um, created. It's an international development organisation that uh, works across the Pacific region for 22 Pacific Island countries and territories, and also four large nations, Australia, New Zealand, France and the US are also members of the Pacific community. So we, we tend to drop the S uh, these days, but it's it's still in the acronym. So can you just tell us, so you basically got 26 countries that are your boss in a sense, 24 and 22 and four territories that are your boss. Can you tell us a little bit about the fisheries you work with and I guess the size of them, say, compared to the snapper fishery in Victoria? Yeah, so the, we we are the main. I work for a group called the, the Fisheries um, 
aquaculture marine ecosystems monitoring group and we um we're basically the main science service provider for the regional tuna fisheries commission which is called the western and central pacific fisheries commission so that's um i guess an amalgamation of all the countries that fish for for tuna in the region and the region that they actually I guess govern over is 20% of the world's surface. So it's the area of the Pacific Ocean, roughly from around Pitcairn Island, all the way through to Australia, up to Japan and down south of New Zealand. So it's a huge area. And there's four key tuna species, I guess, that dominate the harvests from these oceanic fisheries. Skipjack, uh, yellowfin, big eye and albacore. And um, I, it's amazing to think that the last catch records for the last year were a, were a record for the history of this fishery at 3 million tonnes across the three species. So I think you want a comparison that the total commercial fish catch from all of Australian waters is around about 200,000 tonnes. So, <laughs> no pressure, and, mate. And when snapper it comes... is 100 tonnes or so in Victoria, a couple of hundred tonnes. So it's a, it's a huge fishery. It's, it's more than half the global tuna catch comes from, from these waters. And my team is responsible for providing the scientific advice on the status of the stocks of those four species and, um, you know, how, how, how they're being impacted by fishing and what are the sustainable levels of fishing going forward. Well, that basically leads straight into the next question, doesn't it? Um, how sustainable are the tuna fisheries? I mean, tuna fisheries copped a bit of a hiding, was it maybe the 90s with the whole the dolphin safe um, and they seem to be avoided. And I guess, you know, they could... Consider the chicken of the sea. Um, they provide protein for a huge amount of people. But um, what shape are they in? Unlike, uh, I, I guess, in some of the other oceans of the world, that the tuna fisheries are in more depleted states than they are here in the Western and Central Pacific. All the four key tuna stocks here are considered sustainable at the moment and, and not being overfished. Um, I guess there's a, there are some concerns around the big eye and yellowfin, and we wouldn't want to be increasing fishing pressure on, on those species. Um, in terms of albacore, there's some economic issues with that fishery in terms of the catch rates, etc. but in terms of the biomass, it's still quite healthy. Skipjack is the remarkable one. Um, that's the biggest by far, is 2 million tonnes of skipjack get caught every year, and they're the bulk of your canned tuna that you get in the supermarket come from these, this area of the global ocean. So it's a huge one and, and it does still, it's, you know, it still amazes me that that many fish can be taken out of the ocean and that's been happening for a decade or more, those type of catches, and it still seems to be producing. So I think there was a bit of a glitch. So you said, is it 200 million tonne of skipjack? Uh, no, 2 million. 2 million tonne of skipjack. Yeah. And that's what ends up in the basically what you'll find on the supermarket shelves generally? The majority will be skipjack or yellowfin, but skipjack is probably the biggest one that um, is the source of canned tuna. So it's it's important for global food security, not only, you know, most of it gets exported out of the region. And um, I guess a, a key thing about how these fisheries operate is that a lot of the small countries in, in the Pacific, they don't have the resources to have their own fleets. So they charge access to their waters to, to larger countries that can afford big fleets. And they make most of their money through access fees and licences, not through the, actually catching the tuna and selling themselves. And for some of these countries, over half of their government revenue comes from these access fees. So it's an incredibly important resource 
for global food security, but for the economic well-being of the people in this region. So it's really important we, we look after it and make sure it is managed sustainably. That's incredible. Bron, Peter, you got anything? Dr Beach? Uh, 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 Paul, yeah, I was, so the, the, the really Beach, highly the really high, highly prized um, tuna. The, 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 is, is that bluefin tuna? The yeah. ones that sell for enormous amounts of money in Tokyo fish markets, that kind of thing. Yeah, so the, the bluefin is the highest value. Uh, we, the big eye tuna here is probably the second highest. It's very similar to, to the bluefin tuna and it is prized on the sashimi market. So I guess there's two types of fisheries here. There's a long line fishery, which is a hook fishery, and they, they target these larger species like big eye and yellowfin. Um, some of the elephant go to canning, but a lot of it goes to the markets in places like Japan for sashimi. Um, so they have really good freezer um, capacity on those vessels to keep the fish fresh. Whereas the skipjack, it's, it's really a cannery species. Um, so, yeah, if you, if you go a bit further north in the Pacific and you get into the, to the northern bluefin tuna stocks, they are really heavily depleted and overfished in comparison to the more tropical species. Yeah, that was my next question, how, how are those stocks going? So, yeah, they are indeed very, very heavily overfished. Yes, yes, the, the bluefin tuna in the north is around about to 5 or 6% of what it would be if it wasn't fished oh, in wow. terms of the biomass. So they're working on slowly rebuilding that stock over time, but it's a long, long road to that stock recovering. Right, yeah. Paul, I wanted to ask you about the um, what the impacts of uh, of the COVID nineteen pandemic have been on the fisheries, in particular the ones that you're familiar with, with your job, with what you're doing. Yeah, well, it's it's had a. I mean, it's very interesting. We don't have any cases here in Namibia, and, and we've sort of been immune to it. And the Pacific, in general, doesn't have really many cases, but it's had a huge impact on the fishing industry here because. A lot of these boats are foreign fleets and they have foreign crew and so the crew can't get off the boats for a start and it's very similar in most seafaring industries at the moment. There are a lot of issues with crew being trapped on vessels. One of the really key things around how the, the skipjack fishery in particular is managed is that every boat is meant to have an independent observer on board and it, that's a big source of employment for some of these countries. These observers are usually local Pacific Islanders and They've had to be removed from the vessels, so there's very little observer coverage at the moment just to keep track that everyone's doing the right thing. The longline fishery, which sends those high-value fish to those more northern markets, some of those boats have just had to tie up in port because there's no transport to get those fish in fresh condition up to the markets in Japan and those sort of places. So probably the longline fishery is suffering the most. The Perth Seine fishery for the tuna, which is putting these big nets around these schools of tuna is sort of ticking over okay, minus the observers. So it's not just the industry and the economics, it's the employment, et cetera. But, yeah, it's had quite a big impact. Is there a positive effect that's happening on the the, uh, the tuna stocks? So you're talking before about how some of those stocks are being, have been uh, really overfished. Uh, is the sort of slowdown in activity having a positive effect yet or is it a bit too early to tell? Yeah, I guess there's not really major overfishing issues in this region of the Pacific, but yes, there will be. It will be interesting to see the catches will definitely be much lower this year for species like yellowfin and big eye. Um, so, you know, yeah, it'll be very interesting to see if a year or so of lower catches does, you know, lead to some rebounding of these stocks because they are very productive. You know, they they breed like rabbits and um, they grow quite fast. So. 
So they can recover quite quickly. So it will be interesting to see if we do get a little bit of a, of a spike yeah. in catch rates in the next coming year when things tend to open up again, bit hopefully. A bit of a bounce back, yeah. 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 Now, we did tease that we were going to talk about fish aggregating devices, but it seems that we've run out of time, and I actually figured this would happen. We haven't run out of time. Peter's shaking his head saying, feel free to keep on talking. So we will keep on talking then. So we did tease that we're going to talk about fads, you know, not the bell bottoms and the cabbage patch dolls and the mums with perms type of fads. We we're talking about fish aggregating devices. Um, first up, what is a fad? Um, what do they look like? And I guess the other question is, like, what was your worst fad that you got sucked into as a kid? Uh, I'll do the worst fad first was the mushroom haircut. <laughs> <laughs> Back in the 80s, yep, I had a mushy for a while. <laughs> anyway, um, not a mullet like you, Cade, but a mushy. <laughs> um, in terms of the, the fad, the, the fad over here that we're talking about, it's a fish aggregation device, so it's... Uh, it's a floating raft in the water, usually with palm fronds or bits of net and other pieces of stuff hanging underneath it. And these attract huge amounts of schools of tuna out in the open ocean. And then this is particularly important for the skipjack fishery in that these vessels then will wrap these huge nets around these schools of tuna that hang out around these fads. And these nets are about a one and a half kilometres long, I guess, and they... They have a little boat that spins, speeds out, encircles the school, and then they scoop it up like a big purse. And that's the main harvesting method for skipjack tuna. What's happened in recent, in about the last decade or so, is technology of these fads. For while the fad itself, the raft, is quite rudimentary, it's just made out of bits of old bamboo and floats and kind of various stuff that people can put together. Um, the actual buoy that is attached to the fad is now quite sophisticated. It has a transmission to satellite of the position and it also, a lot of them now have echo sounders so they can actually estimate the biomass of fish that is underneath each one of these floating rafts. So a skipper on a vessel can look up on a computer screen and see where all their fads are floating in the ocean and then they can pick which ones are closest which likely have the most fish and drive straight to them to catch them. So it's increased the efficiency and the economics of this fishery greatly. That's phenomenal. So, like as you're saying, they're basically able to plot their journey based on and know almost what they're going to return to port with and how far they have to travel and timing of um, getting back, getting things back is sort of all almost done automatically. So a lot of the searching and that that they used to do is is not is just taken out with this approach. So it, it is a concern in terms of how we capture the impact of that increase in efficiency when we look at the catch rates in the fishery because it can mask, you know, other things going on. They're getting better as the stock's going down. It doesn't look like the stock's going down because they're getting so much better all the time. So that's one of the areas where we're pretty heavily involved in researching to see if we can understand the impacts of that efficiency creep. Paul, it's been wonderful catching up with you. We, we're going to have to wrap up just because we've got a few station announcements we still need to play and uh, we're rapidly coming to the end of today's program. Um, it's been fantastic speaking with you. Really want to catch up with you again. Kate, I'm going to throw back to you to, to close this one off formally. I was, I was getting there, Bron. I, I could feel you breathing down my neck from suburbs away. Look, Paul, you're one of my favourite people to talk to and there's no doubt I will find an excuse to get you back on the show soon. Enjoy all Numea has to offer, including the reggae, and we'll hopefully get you back soon to chat and enjoy the rest of your day, mate. Thanks, guys. Bye. Hey, thanks. Thanks, Paul.
Oh, so fantastic. Hard to believe he's in your mirror. He could be in the next room, Cade. And managing 20% of the Earth's surface. Oh, That's um, pretty impressive, isn't it? <laughs> no pressure. Hey, guys, I reckon we ought to do an OB from Namibia. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Indeed, Triple R is where you are, where it is 9.58, two minutes before radiotherapy kicks off and uh, takes you through to 11 o'clock when Dr Shane, who is already in the studio, how's that for dedication, will uh, take you through to midday and make sure you stay tuned for all the wonderful programs here on 3 Triple R throughout Sunday and, in fact, through every day. A couple of quick mentions I wanted to make. Uh, the Marine and Coastal Awards were announced on Friday afternoon or evening. Uh, massive congratulations to all the winners, including the winner of the Emerge Marine and Coastal Leader, who is our very own Fum Sharko. So congratulations, Fum. Absolutely wonderful news. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, big, big uh, shout-out from us. And, of course, Fum will be in next week. We can talk more about that. And also, Neil Blake, our baykeeper, who we also consider part of the Radio Marinara family, he won the Inspiring Community Engagement and Education uh, Award. So thank you, Neil, for all the wonderful work you do. Thank you, Fum for all the wonderful work you do. Congratulations to all the winners. We're going to go through all of them in detail next week. Uh, Dr Beach, we're going to get you back on the program shortly to talk about the rest of the science that we had lined up for you to talk about. I believe he's... Certainly, Bron. Yeah. No, 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 no. He's still here. I just killed my image so that you get a better voice. <laughs> <laughs> voice got a great voice. Yeah, yeah, voice. love to, Bron. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, so will you be in next week, Dr Beach? I'm not sure about that. I'll we'll have see. to check my social diary. Okay, we'll see how we go. Um, but thank you so much for today. Thank you, Kay, very much for today. Hi, this is Bron Burton. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radio Marinara, a weekly radio show exploring all things wet and salty, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radio Marinara's Facebook page.